From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. We do this every week, coming to you via Zoom as we have been since the start of this pandemic. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, my longtime collaborators, good friends, and fellow faculty members, Eric Bradlow, Shan Jensen. Audie Weiner. Good afternoon, guys. Hello. Good afternoon. We're going to be here for the full two hours. We're going to do our usual COVID segment in the first quarter, a couple of open segments, and then roll into an interview with Ron Yurko, football analyst extraordinaire Ron Yurko, a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon. In the first half hour, guys, as we usually do, we want to talk a little coronavirus, find out what's going, what has caught your I get educated. It's always helpful for me to hear from you guys. I feel like things are shifting a little bit in not so wonderful ways. Adi, you should know, a longtime listener, longtime friend of the show, wrote and said, thank Adi for me for scaring the shit out of me about this 25% chance of getting it. And uh, I think that was a good service. And it's only becoming more obvious that this, these mutations are, are on the way. What's your, what, what, what are you thinking about, Adi? I'm thinking about a lot of things. Um, I'm thinking that to avoid that 25% chance, the best way to do is to change it. So I stay inside a lot more. (laughs) So behaviors are affected by, by probabilities, which is always important. But really what I'm thinking about is two weeks ago, I brought to you guys all attention, the incredibly fast vaccine rollout in Israel. Um, Since then, the rest of the world has picked up on it. I don't know if you've seen the the lots of major coverage in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times talking about how they did it and how other countries potentially might do it. And they just rehashed what we talked about on Money Word Moneyball two weeks ago. So I feel pretty good about that. Basically, mm-hmm. their plan was to do it age and essentially age only and uh, and then have big centralized vaccine services um, yeah. where you can just go. And I've heard all kinds of interesting stories about how at the end of the day, they always had extras because you have to budget and they can't be de- refrozen. And so people would just sort of linger around the arenas towards the end of the evening and hoping they would, there would be extras and often there weren't, but every now and then there was, and, and you can get vaccinated uh, that way. And that's been a big fight like for New York city. Cause like Cuomo threatened anyone, any pharmacy or hospital that gave it to someone who wasn't on the priority list with million dollar fines. And right. they were throwing out vaccines and it took them a week or so before they could reverse that decree and start, you know, at least vaccinating people who were just out and about when they had extras. So um, your point is so important because if you think about the greatest form of uncertainty that exists, not on the effectiveness side, but on the delivery side right now, wouldn't you love to have a dollar for, for a time everyone, anyone asked you the question, wonder when my turn is? When's my turn? Or in our case, our educators, no. are we our best professors? Are we part of group 1B or not? If they just had age, distri- age distribution. You would know. Which, which you yeah. would know. You know your age. Yeah. Matter of fact, and it's easily verifiable. So yep. they can verify your age. And as you said, by far it is the largest effect size event. I mean, it's not even close. It's not even close. So I have to say, uh, members of my family have been vaccinated and members will be soon. So my wife did manage to get vaccinated based on the clergy cooperation she has with the nursing home. She goes into nursing homes regularly. And so she was was able to get the sort of the second tier in the nursing homes, which is much higher than what her tier would be sort of by age. Um, 
whether I agree with that or nothing, that's what the plan is. And we're certainly uh, to, allowed to take it. But what's crazy about it, and I'm going to throw this out right now, it's absolutely senseless, is that my daughter is on a list to get vaccinated next week in New York City. Why? Because she is a, a, a teacher in a preschool, but not very often. She's a substitute and hasn't been doing very long. And it, regardless whether she would or not, she is not. She should not be a priority. She should not be taking anyone who is who is over 60s place at this point or even over 50 or 40s place. It is a complete misplace of resource. Are we going to, is she going to reject it? No. Uh, makes it easier for me to see her, I suppose. I'm not vaccinated. Um, but but Adi, I don't so think it's right. Can you, have it, can you have it both ways? I mean, on the one hand, you're saying, hey, you know, if stuff's left over, they should just grab someone and give it to them. And we always have some stuff left over and we're getting stories of places who have to throw away things. So that on the one hand, you're saying that. On the other hand, you're saying, hey, my daughter who has kind of a, an excuse, it's not a great one, but an excuse to get it and kind of jump the line. Is that really okay? I kind of feel like, the pure perspective is, you know, jumping line's fine because a lot of vaccine is going wanting right now. But push back, maybe I'm wrong. I'm happy with jumping the line. It's the planned part that I'm not so happy with. The idea that this is being planned, that uh, teachers, no matter what their age, are able to get vaccinated. And that doesn't seem to make sense to me. Okay, but I, I guess it's because it's so uneven around the country. There are places where there are legitimate people, high priority, who want it and can't get it, while there are other places in the country that have excess supplies that are not coming off the shelf because they don't have they don't have the right delivery system. Yep. So both of those things exist. Yep. Okay. And that's the, that's the plan. Right. But I, but I, just to, to segue slightly, I did get some sort of inside scoop a little bit about why Israel is moving so quickly. I mean, that was all on its own. But it sounds like Pfizer is actually cooperating and now is delivering extra you know million or so doses. And the reason for this, and that's almost shocking, they are treating Israel as a test case. And they, they really want to see what happens if a large fraction of the, of the population is quickly vaccinated. And also testing, and this is my... my uh, essentially my, my supposition, many, many types of people were never included in the clinical trial, right? And certainly no children were, that was advertised, but also no young people who were already exposed. Why would they do that? Why would you include in your clinical trial people who already had the virus? Um, that's sort of a waste of a, of a spot in a clinical trial. And I don't, I don't think they did that, although they must have done some testing on people who have antibodies. The risk, of course, and there's been some early reports, that um, young people in particular who've already have antibodies can react pretty strongly to the, particularly the second dose of the virus, of the vaccine. Oh, really? and, and there are reports of multi, multi-syndrome inflammatory disease that happens when your, your immune system just kind of gets hypercharged. We're going to be watching that. And uh, it's, not, it's not necessary to get scared, but it's something to watch out for in the future. And the advice that I would probably throw out, if you have been already sick and diagnosed and have, and have antibodies, there's no rush to be rushing out for that vaccine. Audrey, let me ask you a quick question. Is there any reason we couldn't combine? Let's actually say we had a cheap, accurate, and effective rapid test. Is there any reason why, you know, you couldn't give somebody, you know, station one rapid test. Here's your result. Um, if you get past station one, meaning you haven't had COVID, we send you on to station two. Great idea. Thank you. <laughs> so, so real quickly, just to keep everyone up to speed, these rapid tests now, this isn't a do you have it? This is a, a presence of antibodies, meaning have you ever had it? Those are available rapid tests to identify whether you've ever had it? I think so. And I will say there's value to people for the vaccine, not just the vaccine itself and whatever protection comes for that, but the fact that you get a piece of paper that says, you know, 
you know, you're, you've been vaccinated. Like, so people who have been previously had COVID and, 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 you know, we, as a society, we're not going to kind of trust them to be immune basically. And so like, if we do get to the point where you're going to need like a COVID card or something like that to fly in a plane or whatever, I don't, I don't know if we're going that way as a society anyway, but one could easily envision it is going to be the case. It's not just that you're getting the vaccine is you're getting essentially accredited for having gotten the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And those, that, and so, you know, this kind of argument that we should kind of wait on people who have already had COVID I think a lot of those people would probably be demanding the vaccine at the same rate as anybody else. So, Adi, let me ask you a question um, also about, let's call it transmissibility of at the point of getting the vaccine. So as an example, my mother also, I happen to live, as you know, I grew up in New York. My mother still lives in Manhattan. Um, Her turn in line has come. She's 88. She's getting it on Saturday. And you're like, that sounds great. Wonderful. But to go get it, she's having to go to the Javits Center. And now I'm thinking to myself, wait a second Mm. here. (laughs) She's going to the Javits Center to get a vaccine. So how do you think about... Can you explain to those who haven't been there what the Javits Center is? Yeah, so the Javits Center is an extremely large... Most major cities, even smaller cities have this. It's a large convention center. I don't know how many millions of square feet the Javits Center is, but one of the largest convention centers in the United States. It's located on the middle west part of manhattan and so i don't know how the lines are going to be set up actually the person taking her not surprisingly you'll be happy about this is my brother who's a cardiologist who of course has had two doses of the vaccine already Mm -hmm. so he's not overly worried about taking her to the javits center but how much should we be thinking about okay so to get it she's got to go somewhere and possibly be exposed but on the other hand we want her to get the vaccine so how much is that going into thinking that people are you know having right now well, I guess a lot of it has to do with this variant and how widespread we believe it truly is yet. I don't think there's evidence that it's as widespread in all places. I don't think New York has, uh, has indications that okay, it's hold spreading on. But widely. Before you, go, before you go to this variant, the mutation, just what's the, how do you feel about the – so it's a big space, but it's, a, it's an enclosed place. It's not a stadium with open air. So I take the question to be just the traditional variant. Yeah. Is there no risk to go in and stand in line with hundreds or thousands of other people? Well, I don't think I, th- I imagine they're going to do they have pretty good precautions. But if the hospitals have, who have been functioning since the very beginning in indoor circumstances are any indication with appropriate masks um, and and modest a bit of distancing, uh, that should drive down your possibility of transmission to in a single event to be a pretty low number. So okay. it's the single event and the low time of exposure and the distancing. In some sense, you're using you're going to use all the combination of factors that we know that drive the probability down. Except for the out, except for the outdoors bit. Now you've got a big place, but it's not outdoors. And some places are doing. I think Texas is just now beginning to put in some of these large open air venues, centralized open air venues. So it's it's uh, this is what we're seeing around the country is that there are learnings and there are adaptations. So New York has adapted their system. Texas has just announced four centralized, massive places, including some of these outdoor stadiums. So this is something they've learned. It's like, okay, all the little local pharmacies, that isn't going to be the optimal strategy. So it's great to see these kinds of learnings. It's going to be interesting to see mm-hmm. what else evolves over time. Now, Adi, about the variation, the, the variants, the mutations. So you gave us a heads up a couple of weeks ago about this stuff coming. And now, you know, not that firstly it was the UK strain, and then there's a South Africa strain and the, and, and just, I think yesterday, a Japanese strain was. But, and it's not just a new strain, because everyone says 
the new strains are an inevitable part of what happens over time, especially as the vaccines come in. But some of these are much more contagious than the original strain. And so this is, they're not as fatal, but they're more contagious. But, that, but because contagion is an exponential process, you end up with more fatalities. Oh, so it's really yeah. concerning how bad it is. It is concerning. Right? I mean, the data points from around the world, as you pointed out, I think Ireland, you, you sent around some information about that, is blowing up. I know that from uh, you know, Israel's experience, they've been on sort of some kind of partial lockdown for a long time. And cases do not seem to be diminishing. Um, and, and they know they have the UK variant in large numbers. Well, the, the, we're used to these steep curves and yet, when you see the new curves coming out of places like Ireland that have these new mutations, they are completely blowing away the previous curves. I mean, the steepness is just daunting. And so, so there's great concern about what's going to happen when the U.S. gets a bigger dose of this stuff. Eric. So how are we all thinking about our um, forecasts now? How are we Which all one? thinking? Well, the ones where, you know, um, I, I've, I've apparently underestimated, but I think mine might have been the highest of ours. I predicted, I think, 400,000 deaths. Mm. by april 1st um i'm taking the over at this point for sure yeah. i'm talking about six months ago when we were eight months ago when we were all doing some forecasting and now you know in some sense this is what you've talked about for a long time Cade, which is what are the great sources of uncertainty well we've now found another one which is so the vaccine is here the distribution is slower than expected um a new variant is here that might be three to five times as contagious as the other one um those should have widened, given history, those should have widened our confidence intervals maybe more than we did before. And so that's what I'm thinking about. Like, I'm blaming myself. I should, why, why would I think that the U.S. would be good at vaccine distribution? And uh, that's number one. Well, that, that, one, I, that one, at least, I feel like I was predicting from the start that this would be an incredibly inefficient process. Yeah, but also the possibility, as I think, uh, Kate, you just mentioned it, and Adi talked about it earlier in today's show, um, this is what happens. The, this viruses mutate. Viruses mutate. That's what happens. And mm -hmm. so now we didn't have an expectation maybe it would be as severe as it is now. But I, I, I think, you know, I haven't seen the latest forecasts except the last time I saw them from I, IHME, however good they are. It's well over 500,000 deaths now. That's right. I'm looking at it now. By April 1, the, the, the mean forecast, you know, they, 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 they now have it conditioned on many different policy worlds, policy states. So how, how, much, how many mandates are out there, how rapidly vaccine is rolled out. But their forecast right now is 567,000 by the April 1st. Yeah. All right, the I'm going I'm I'm to boldly take the under on that. And my, my argument for that is I've been tracking pretty closely Philadelphia deaths um, and comparing the current round, which is a substantial surge compared to the original May, April, March, April surge. And much of the death is driven by nursing home exposure, not all of it by any measure, but a f substantial amount of that. And if I take the opinion and put it into my forecast or the belief that nursing home residents are the first group of people getting vaccinated and that the vaccine works, then I expect not to see that progression and rapid deaths that we had been seeing through the nursing home level and they're therefore not hitting 560. So I'm going to take the under on that. What, data, what data, Adi, have we seen on the efficacy of the drug for the, the high elderly population? Do we know, is it 95% effective for a 90-year-old? Hard to believe that it is, but even if it's only 90 or 85, that will have the effect that it's needed. Um, it's hard to say. Um, 
I know that they did. They did actually experiment and gave the vaccine as part of the trial to 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 seniors over eighty. And I suppose it's too early. I mean, we all, you know, the, the, the we've we've had assurances that these new variants that we're kind of seeing are are, are st- that the current vaccines that we have are still protective against these new variants. Do, do we have any actual, I guess, data on that? I suppose, or anything like that? Or <laughs> oh, oh, shame. And, and, and I'll follow up with something that we at least maybe have some hope of data on. We kept talking about how these new variants are like three to five times. As, as 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 communicable or whatever um have we been have we seen enough of them now to kind of deconvolve what has happened you know because this last month was also kind of you know the perfect storm of sort of seasonality effects as right. well as kind of you know the gathering the gathering that happens over the holiday season yeah. and you know so i mean a lot of the kind of like rapid sort of you know sort of increases we're seeing right now presumably all of those are kind of adding into that. And so I don't know how much to separate out the new variant effect in that versus the kind of holiday gathering effect, et cetera. It's a fair question. And I, I don't think we do know. And also as these new, new. So one of the questions maybe that, uh, you know, Cade's bringing up is, you know, how soon are we going to learn about the data here? Like, how soon will it take us to learn as, as about Shane's question about, you know, uh, how quickly these things will, you know, uh, you know, the communicable communicability rate of this disease versus the others? I, I think we're going to learn pretty quickly. I think they've revised some of the communica- communicability rates. They were 30% to 60% earlier. I think they've revised that upwards. Uh, you know, Shane mentioned, you know, multiple factors, but but uh, we'll see where that is. But I do think we'll know whether or not the virus, the, the vaccine works on elderly and on the new variants fairly quickly. I think, okay. how, what do I mean by that? Oh, it's probably another six weeks from now, but that's that's about how long it'll take. Adi, your Actually, forecast, you're taking the under against IHME's current yes. 567, 567. But that's a gimme. Months. I've taken the under on every single time and I've won every time. Okay, but hold on. I'm pushing <laughs> on one thing because you, you're the one raising the alarm about the, the spread. New yes. Yeah. So let me just, I want to walk through an example that comes to us from Zainab Tufeki. We talk about Zainab every now and then. Um, she has an Atlantic article from maybe two weeks ago about these new variants. And she just, she, she walks through an example that comes from Adam Kucharski, Kucharski, Adam Kucharski, a professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He gives an example which illustrates how differently the exponential process works from just a typical multiplicative process. And I think the example highlights how poorly we, are, how poor our intuition for exponential processes. So for example, t- let's, t- let's just walk through a basic virus, some basic parameters um, where, you know, I'm just gonna, he's gonna make some assumptions about fatality risk being less than 1%, about the reproduction rate being 1.1 and maybe 10,000 active infections. So he's just kind of modeling a typical European city. And he's saying at the current, the current process we've been facing, they would expect an incremental 129 deaths in the next month, okay? Then he considers two possibilities. Let's increase the fatality by the fatality rate by 50%, or let's increase the, the transmissibility by 50%. All right. And how what's the what's the concomitant increase in deaths as a result of that? Right. So typical European city, typical parameters for the process, 129 29 expected deaths over the next month. And then we're going to try two different variations. One's going to increase the fatality rate by 50%. The other's going to increase the transmissibility by ah. 
what is the expected number of deaths under these two new variations? Well, I know the difference between e to the e to the RT and times R. I can tell you that much. So e to the RT okay. is going to kill you. <laughs> okay, so exactly. So from if you if you increase the fatality rate by fifty percent, the number of expected deaths goes from one hundred twenty nine to one hundred ninety three. This looks like about a 50% increase. So it's pretty straightforward. Right? Yeah, that's it's exactly, it's, it's 1.5 exactly times 129. It's exactly <laughs> okay. times R. Yep. Okay. So alternatively, if you increase transmissibility, but you don't increase fatality, right? Just the transmissibility, you expect instead of 129 deaths, 978. That's the way it goes. Yep. So it's 978 versus what, what do we say? 193. I mean, it's remarkable difference. And this, what, the reason I'm emphasizing this, which is the reason Tefeki put it in her article, which is the reason Kucharski put up, came up with the example, is that we don't have that intuition. That no, we don't have that intuition. But there's, there's a couple of things working for us in this is that there's a, it's, it, what really it affects is not the reproducibility number, not the RT. Well, it does affect that. But it also affects what really matters is um, it, what happens is it affects the transmissibility in an encounter. Which right now, as we've seen all along, is a, a, a random variable that's often zero and sometimes at very hard, large number, very explosive, where you get these super spreaders. That's what's going to change the transmissibility. If you can keep people away from each other, it doesn't really matter whether your 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 your, 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 your transmissibility is raised. Right. And does does this new variant somehow change our propensity to alter behavior? <laughs> yeah, hopefully it'll scare you and stop doing it. That's I don't. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think people. Let me, are let me ask another. Anymore. Worked on me. I'm still sitting in my house. I haven't combed well, my hair in a week. Well, let me let me ask another. <laughs> is that different. Hold on. Is that different from before? <laughs> no. <laughs> let, let me ask another behavior based question. Do we know? I mean, obviously it was a rule of thumb: six feet, nine feet. However. In this new one, does that imply for me to get the same amount of protection? I need to be 25 feet away? Like Eric, they don't know. They don't know why it's more transmissible. It could be that it stays in the air longer. It could be say it stays on surfaces longer. It could be that less of a load that it's a higher viral load or, or it requires less of a load. What they don't know what the means is what or they are, what the means are right now. I see. So we don't know. One of the things that says you should do is remember how we acted back in March when this thing first came and we didn't know. We've gotten complacent. We've kind of figured out how to navigate this thing in a certain way. Well, we need to act as if we don't know because the new variant may come in a very different, by a very different channel. That's right. right? But, so, but, my, but my under was based on vaccination. But but I have to say, Kate, my under was based on vaccination. That was really my my thought. Vaccination, not of the whole population by any measure, but vaccination of the most risk at risk. Yeah, I love it. It's a it's a it's it's spot on. It's clever. It's all those things, but it also is like independent of this new thing. And so I'm just kind of pushing you. It's hard to integrate both of these. But if I don't know, it's also a multiplier. It's not an it's not an E to the art change. It's a multiplier. So that right puts me in my place. You know, I just feel like every time. Every time we've been warned for the last year, and it's literally been a year now, every time we've been warned and you see this trouble way off on the horizon, just a little bit of puff of smoke on the horizon, every time it's proven to be a disaster in the, in the medium term. You know, it, it hasn't, I don't think it's really been overestimated yet. Yeah. I mean, not, not, I mean, you know, a little overestimations here and there, but not categorically. Whenever they say something categorically is about to happen, it's happened. Well, that's a great question. Like how well calibrated have these models been? Like we're now at, but I, I apologize, 370,000 deaths, whatever the number is right now, 380. And so the question is, if we look back at these forecasts that we thought were way overestimates from a year ago, are they? 
I don't think they've been overestimated. Oh, oh, I think. So. I mean, first of all, they don't. People didn't really make long-term forecasts. They made more like you know, two months in advance, yeah. and those turned out to be not so good. One of the things I observed about forecasts is that the varieties of different forecasts never had calibrated uncertainty bounds, which is obviously different. But it's actually well, what quite is important. that? Hold on. What What does that mean? So if if I have a forecast and say it's and say it's three hundred thousand deaths plus or minus, and UK to have a forecast that say a different number plus or minus, it'd be comforting to know that at least our confidence ranges or prediction intervals overlap, and so frequently they didn't overlap, which said to me that this is a lot more guesswork than we really would like there to be in this whole forecasting. That's endeavor. interesting. There's a there's a there have been studies in psychology of like clinical judgment, say, in, say like oncologists on cancer treatments or nurses on some various treatments. And they've observed that um, they, this pattern they call micro certainty, macro uncertainty, that mm. any given practitioner is quite sure the right thing to do. But if you look across all the practitioners, even in similar cases, they come up with different things. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's exactly the, the, the manifestation of what I'm describing. But, you know, the thing that really disappoints me is that I feel like over this last, you know, six months, We've stopped thinking about treatment and we've just put our, all our eggs in the vaccine basket. And we've forgotten about, I, I think tragically, two innovations that we were hoping to see early on that never materialized. One was extremely rapid and extremely cheap testing with the strips, right? Remember those, all those discussions we had about that stuff? Those never came to fruition, I think, anywhere. And interesting, in my own pen inbox this morning came a new... Uh, study by one of our faculty in, in biomedicine or bioengineering who has a new strip. And I'm like thinking, this sounds great. Why don't we all have it? And that was been really disappointing because you could use it every single day. It didn't matter that it wasn't that accurate. It would give you collectively a lot of information that would be quite useful. That never got rolled out. The other issue is treatment. Uh, another study came out of plasma, this time controlled experiment, exactly the way you'd like it to do, on early, um, on people, yet super sick. That's where it's supposed to be effective. And it clearly showed a substantial decrease in um, mortality. And yet all these treatments, the monoclonal antibodies, the, the plasma stuff has just been hovering in the background, underused, not well thought about. Doctors aren't prescribing it. And it has to be done early. And I think this is, this is something that might end up coming up and mattering as more people start to get very sick, as more people get get. Right. Um, well, that, that's, you're touching, you're getting close. I mean, another thing we haven't gotten better at is coordination of our delivery system. And so early in the pandemic, states and hospitals within states were bidding against each other for PPE. Mm -hmm. And recently, there's been a similar problem with bidding against each other for nurses. And it's the same, it's, the, it's a complete lack of coordination. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we ought to have one system that governs everything because we don't have a great track record for those being efficient devices either, but every hospital for themselves, every hospital system for themselves on these vital elements like PPE and nurses doesn't seem like the right thing. And you would have thought we'd have figured that out by now. And we apparently haven't figured that out by now. The hospital systems, at least in some parts of the country are crushed right now. And Adi, whenever you're considering your death forecast, if we broaden the lens to excess deaths of all kinds, which is something you've done some work on. Oh, already. yeah, yeah. That, but if you consider that, and if the, if the hospitals are truly as overloaded as they seem to be right now, and then we get hit with a big spike, it's not just going to be the 567 or whatever the number is from COVID. It's going to be excess deaths from people mm -hmm. running into a hospital system that has no capacity.
No, but Adi's point is a great one, which is by not just putting all our eggs in the vaccine basket, if people knew that they had COVID because of a rapid test, let's hope they wouldn't go outside. If people got it and they were able to uh, you know, not get more severely ill, that would help tremendously. Um, and so you know, the vaccine, I, I could not agree more. As a matter of fact, you could make an argument that given the cost and the ability to distribute, there are other things in the shorter term that could have been more effective than just in the short term than just the vaccine. And certainly using these in combination could have a tremendous impact. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, I mean, again, a lot of the countries we've been looking at, like the UK, US, et cetera, I mean, I have had similar disappointing trajectories, but I mean, you know, Japan, South Korea, I mean, there are places we can look at that have had obviously a much more successful approach to the entire COVID situation. And again, I don't know even at this like long range view, whether we know if that was mostly because of rapid testing or, you know, more social distancing, mask adherence, et cetera. But I mean, I think that, you know, there's an opportunity. I mean, there are countries out there we could definitely learn from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, guys, uh, one last piece of news before we roll off of this section. Um, it's just been announced that Disneyland is going to be a mass vaccination center out in California. So very much in the spirit of what we're talking about, that you get these big centralized open air, ideally. Not being used either right now, apparently. It's Eric, not. Eric, don't you have don't you have a kid out there working for those guys? Is he going to be in helping out? delivering vaccine vaccines? Uh, I don't know, but I can tell you, uh, since he's a financial analyst, he may well be looking at the business model associated with uh, Disneyland opening and distributing vaccines. They certainly know about designing queues. <laughs> yeah. So I feel <laughs> like true. it'll be, uh, you know, relative as, as processes go, they're the most efficient people movers probably out there. It's, it's symbolic. The symbolism is extraordinary. All right, guys, first quarter in the can that has been one quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM. Two hours of sports analytics every week just out of our COVID segment, rolling into what we used to call open lines, whatever sport is, is on our mind. I think I know what it is. We are fully loaded here. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Massey. We're going to have a special guest here in a second for a quick segment. But first, guys... NFL, we had uh, a delicious weekend of NFL games, triple headers, both Saturday and Sunday. I mean, it was a feast. Did you enjoy anything in particular catch your eye? I said I watched more football this past weekend than I have all season. So for me, it was great fun. But that's because of the brackets. And once you get invested with sports, with the betting, even though we don't think we have any money in it, <laughs> um, maybe we do. I don't remember. Um, yes, we do. We do. It, it, it really magically focuses your attention. It, you care more. This is, of course, the, the business model for sports today. And the reason, one of the reasons behind the, about the sports betting legalization. Well, we'll cover it. We'll cover, we'll kind of update where we are in the brackets here in a moment, but across the games, what did you, what, what did you find yourself pulling for the most? What did you find interesting? Uh, you, there was some chatter on some fourth down calls, I know. Yeah, well, I watched so much football. I, I, I guess I was able to observe firsthand how many teams don't follow the, the you know, the, the, the right choice on four, fourth down. And, and I don't even have the chart memorized. I'm looking at it and going, you're supposed to go on this, you know, yeah. on your opponent's 40, you know, two yard line when it's fourth and three or whatever it is, or fourth and two. It makes obvious sense that you should be going. I don't know why they were punting. No, and, and I mean, I, I do think it was almost like an unusual number of those kind of fourth 
down snafus this past weekend. I, I mean, there's two or three very notable ones, which I, you know, I obviously picked off on as well. I mean, I, the one in the Pittsburgh uh, Cleveland game that basically sort of killed whatever momentum that Pittsburgh had to mm-hmm. kind of get back in that game was a, a very egregious one. So that, that was early in the game and they were down 28-0, right? If I remember correctly. No, no, no. This was, this was in the, uh, the uh, close to the start of the fourth quarter. Yeah, they were down, oh, 30, they, they they were down 35 to 23. Yeah. They had fourth and one, fourth and maybe less than one, fourth and less than one from their own 46 or 47 yard line down 35 to 23 how much time left i mean it shouldn't about matter. a quarter about, about a quarter, quarter left yeah. that's extraordinary yeah. yeah that's extraordinary and then the one that people just lost themselves over was tennessee tennessee yeah. Uh, tennessee yeah that's right and that was in the first half but was you know as far as the analytics go was an even more kind of egregious decision do you think yeah. do you think coaches think about fourth down decisions any differently at this point in the season than usual or is it just anecdotal that we happen to have a couple of really egregious ones? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I kind of wonder how much, I mean, cause coaches are so hyper-focused on particular match. I like, you know, the, the one kind of argument that we've always sort of made for maybe kind of departing from these, you know, these kind of probably what the probability models say you should do is kind of the context of the particular game or the personnel that are involved. And so you know, again, I mean, I, 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 frankly, I think the context when you have Derrick Henry in the back, uh, or, or sort of when you have like, you know, like a, I don't think the context necessarily suggests that these decisions were even any less egregious than they were. But I kind of wonder whether a coach kind of like in a playoff situation is even more kind of factoring in sort of yeah. context or game flow or whatever, whatever, whatever other things would argue for departing from the probability model. Yeah. I wondered if it's the, the high profile or the regret or something that makes mm-hmm. it a little more egregious. So my overall takeaway from these games was I didn't see any super teams out there or any super football out there. I mean, I saw the Buccaneers. I mean, you saw the greatest player of all time. No, I saw <laughs> that. Do his I, thing. I, I got that. But I, I didn't think. <laughs> I, yeah, but, you know, what? so I'm happy to go through it game by game. I mean, I saw the Buccaneers play the Washington football team. I saw the Washington football team that in against many teams the last five or six weeks couldn't move the ball. They had no trouble putting up whatever a 23-24 spot or whatever it was against the Buccaneers defense. They looked like there were people open all over the field. And this was a quarterback who had played maybe half of a football game as in his entire career. I saw the Ram, the Rams and the uh, uh, Seahawks. The, the, you know, the Rams defense, everything looked good, but th- those were two flawed teams in my view. The Saints against the Bears, the Saints beat the Bears, but so could lots of teams. The Bears couldn't move the ball on offense. I don't think the Saints looked that f- – they looked maybe the strongest and well-balanced of the teams that were there. But I, I don't know. I wasn't that impressed by any of the teams. Cleveland-Pittsburgh was a mistake fest. Guys open all over the field. I wasn't that impressed by any of the teams that played. I came out very impressed by Buffalo. I thought they had a very complete game. Indy played a heck of a game, and Buffalo, you know, and Buffalo still beat them. Well, well, that good. Well, I mean, well, we'll find out. That's what we're going to find out, yeah. Shane. I agree with you. Buffalo looked good. We'll find out, though. Or Indianapolis is no good, and Buffalo is no good too. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I will say by construction, the world beater teams, to the extent that there are any, we're not in this round, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean this, this is you know, the wild card weekend usually does not have the world beater teams in it. No, so, so that that. 
one of the fun things about this weekend, I, we mentioned last week that the key for the brackets going forward are the are those three six games. And the if the sixes win there, then it flips the brackets. And so the Ravens, you know, would have been going to KC, but for the fact that Cleveland beat Pittsburgh. And so now they're going to Buffalo, and probably that's a better draw than Kansas City. Some could argue it, but it happened in both conferences, which is fun. And the one in the in the in the AFC was has to be the biggest surprise, especially 15 minutes in with the Browns up 28, nothing over the Steelers. And I, I want, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's, it's rich in lots of different ways. Obviously it's a great, it's a great way win for the Browns. They haven't been in the playoffs in 20 years and they haven't had a win in like 25 or something. And this is a long process beginning to bear a little fruit. This was over their division rival, you know, it's rich, but for the Steelers side, I mean, this has to be so disappointing after having started as brilliantly as they did and looked this bad. And then they, you know, it was just a couple of weeks ago that they were looking pretty shaky as well. And so one, I want to get a little more insight into this. There's a football analyst floating around who called the shot weeks ago that the Steelers weren't all they looked to be. When they were 11-0, PSF's uh, George Shahari was saying, hey, look, Pittsburgh's not what you guys think it is. Pittsburgh's not the, the team this year. And so we, we asked if we could get George for a few minutes here to give us insight into what exactly happened in Pittsburgh and what he saw back in November when he made this call. So George, welcome aboard. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me guys. Um, I would Thanks. say first off that I'm a glutton for, uh, for pain, I guess would be, would be what I was really after because when you call the Pittsburgh Steelers overrated, you're asking for it, right? Um, <laughs> you mean the, fan, the fan base. Is that, is that what you're saying? They're, they're ruthless, man. I, I look, I know this cause I grew up, I'm from California and I, I knew Pittsburgh Steelers fans were prevalent when I was living in California. That's how vast they are, right? Like there are right. contingencies of Steeler nation everywhere and man, they're passionate. So, um, you know, what it was really about though, and, and I've had a lot of good conversations with people about this is, um, there are data points all over the place. And we've gotten past, I think, a lot of the, oh, I'm just going to give an opinion without any data, to now giving opinions where any data that is thrown in is seen as being worthwhile. Okay. And, I, and, and that's not true, right? Like, you know, right. touchdown interception ratios don't have the meaning that, you know, people want them to have in a lot of situations. So what, what I looked at with the Steelers were a couple of things. The first was that they were very much reliant on their defense. And their defense had played one of, if not the easiest at that point, um, schedules. I think it was them and the Colts uh, to that point and had been very healthy. And we know from work that we've done at PFF, uh, Josh Hermsmeyer has written about this a bunch uh, as well. The instability of defense is um, just something that we need to accept. And okay, so, so, so George, make sure I understand what you're saying there. You're saying, look, if you see a team that's been outperforming defensively, it's a little bit like seeing a team who's been recovering a disproportionate share of fumbles or interceptions. You mm. don't expect it to last. And so you can't, you, you would kind of short them just on that principle alone. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there's, so there's turnover luck. And then I think injury luck is a big one. Like you need all the pieces of your defense to be intact for it to be as good as you want it to be. And if you lose one, that whole thing can start to really erode quickly. Whereas on offense, look, it's all about your quarterback. You could, you might lose, a left tackle. Um, but if your quarterback's really good, 
he will be able to get the ball out more quickly if you have receivers that are getting open. So yes, turnover luck and then the um, intactness of the defensive system. And then the, the second thing that um, maybe I should have mentioned this first was just Big Ben in the offense. Big Ben was throwing the ball, you know, dinking, dunking it down the field, um, was not grading well for us. I believe he was 23rd in PFF grade. Um, and a lot of their success offensively had come on third downs, whereas on first and second down, they were a bottom 10 team in the league. And that's another thing where first and second down performance is something that is more consistent over time, whereas third down, just like play under pressure, it's a small sample size thing. It's subject to a lot of variance. Um, and I didn't expect that to uh, maintain at a top 10 rate. And um, all of those things kind of came true in every sense of the word, I guess. George, I kind of have a question. As you were kind of watching Big Ben specifically kind of through the season, was he was he kind of, you know, was his level of play decreasing over time? Or or like was there kind of a trajectory downwards that might be kind of like, you know, due to age and, and, and just kind of like, you know, like the fact that he's recovering from injury? Or was it kind of essentially like relatively constant performance, just somewhat, you know, below average throughout the season? Yeah, that's a great question. So you know, we um, are often great, you know, we're grading, not often, always grading the process. And oftentimes the result colors, you know, things very differently. So he had like a better touchdown interception ratio than Tom Brady did through 11 weeks. But Tom Brady was our fifth highest graded quarterback and Big Ben was 22nd or whatever. And that was, that was pretty much throughout. There were never, there were never games where he was making three or four or five throws on the money, 15, 20 plus yards downfield. That just like wasn't happening, but they were beating teams handily. The box score looked really good. And so you got the sense that he must've been doing this. And I think especially because the history with big Ben is that he does these things, you know, like you remember big Ben escaping the pocket and shredding defenders and, and, you know, heaving it downfield Antonio Brown, that wasn't happening. And we haven't seen that happen for quite some time. The two games that he played before going down to injury were not pretty either, right? You know, last season. So um, those things, I think, really were in, uh, you know, in an opposite ends of the spectrum. And he had just not been good for a while. So, George, why – this is Eric Bradlow. Why do you think they were dinking and dunking? I kept wondering. I mean, they have guys that can go deep. I mean, I, I always thought Claypool certainly was a rookie, of course. But Juju, I mean, is, is – did, is it Big Ben or are guys not getting open deep? You know, they throw the ball so quickly. I mean, his average snap to pass is 2.2 seconds, which is just as the lowest we've ever seen in, in PFF's charting. And it's hard to push the ball downfield if you want to get rid of it that quickly. I, I'm kind of of the mind that the there was a part in Big Ben's you know, uh, career there with Antonio Brown, where he did still go deep a decent amount, about league average, but it was always quick. He made the decision and he threw it down there. And I, while you're correct, I do think those guys can get down there, can go down the football field. I'm not sure he has that rapport with any of these guys where he's willing to make that decision confidently, um, you know, kind of right at the snap. And so I, to me, that played a role in it. Um, I also just don't think that his deep ball um, is all that great anymore. 
you know, the accuracy just simply has not been there. Maybe part of that is comfortability. Um, but it is peculiar because you just don't see teams succeeding today in the NFL without being able to stretch the field vertically. Yeah, Adi, please. Yeah, hey, George. Uh, this is Adi Weiner. Uh, I just want to ask you a little bit about uh, the Steelers and their embrace or failure to embrace the analytics revolution, if you will, in football. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a caveman, but I've learned a few things, and they are you're supposed to pass, especially deep. You're supposed to play action, quarterback sneak. What else is there? Go for it on fourth down. What am I missing? <laughs> and, and my understanding, just watching the Steelers, they don't do any of those things. So how does that play in? I, you said it perfectly. I, I like I am as confused as anyone, especially because I've met some people that have worked, you know, for the Steelers over time and um, I've been impressed by them. I, I've heard great things about Mike Tomlin and, you know, the like the leadership capability that he has. So it's strange to me that they haven't embraced. You know, usually you think of great leaders as being the ones to, you know, be humble and embrace change. And you're you're dead on. They run play action. I was looking at this today because I was looking at the Bucks, who, to their credit, have come a little bit out of the Stone Age with relation to play action. The, the Steelers are a solid nine percentage points below the next lowest team in terms of not running play action. Like, it's just, it's, it's crazy to me. Um, and, and I don't get it. The, the quarterback sneak one, that, that fourth and one, you're telling me that, I mean, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, any quarterback, old or young, is sneaking it there. You know, at least you have that option. Um, and not going for it there, uh, Richard Sherman and Chris Collinsworth do a podcast uh, on the PFF Podcast Network every week. And today, Chris was like, hey, Richard, that fourth and one, you're a defender. What do you want the offense on the other side to do? And he goes, oh, I want them to punt it away. I don't want them going for that. You know, I think I have a better chance to win if my team is able to get the ball back on that punt. And I think that sums it up. If the opposing defense is happy you're punting, yeah. you know, there's probably a problem there. <laughs> so we're, we're here on Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to George Shahuri. George is the CXO at Pro Football Focus. So, George, let me ask you a question. So where do the Steelers go from here? Let's assume, given the Steelers' history, they're not going to get rid of Mike Tomlin. Um, let's assume for... I don't know, maybe Big Ben, maybe Roethlisberger. Well, I think that's the big question mark. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I guess I'll, I'll interrupt your question sure. with a question, which is, do you think, you know, what you've seen of Big Ben, you know, in, in that playoff game in this season, would Pittsburgh be, is Pittsburgh going to perhaps look to move on from him? I mean, per, perhaps part of their, you know, fact that they can't, you know, have an embrace downfield passing is they no longer have a person that can do that for them. I I absolutely would. And I think one of the hardest things to do is to quit before, you know, you have to. Um, but one of the most beneficial things you can do in the NFL, as the Kansas City Chiefs proved, is to actually do that, right? To look to be great. You can be good. The Steelers can be good as they were this year. They can't be great with Big Ben anymore. And I, they have the pieces there. Like Deontay Johnson is a very good receiver. Chase Claypool really came on this year and, and I think almost out of the blue for people that don't watch Notre Dame football. And they do have playmakers on defense. If you brought in a young quarterback that could be a top 10 guy, this could be potentially a great team. But if you wait for Big Ben to you know die off into the sunset or however it may go, you risk losing all those players. You know, you risk losing the prime of TJ Watt's career. Um, 
and that would be sad. So I absolutely would look to move on at quarterback. I understand that Big Ben has a massive cap hit coming up. 41, um, $41.25 million. I tweeted about I mean, it uh, yesterday. 41.25 if Big Ben's not on the team. And the barrier kind of is, I mean, I, I think you were, you, you sort of mentioned that ideally they would bring in a good young quarterback, like a top 10 young quarterback. I don't think, I mean, I don't think they're going to be getting, going to have the draft sort of, unless they really start trading or something like that. I don't think they're going to have the draft capital to accomplish that, at least for this uh, next season. So are we looking at potentially like a, at least a transition year where maybe they rolled out with, you know, I don't know, Philip Rivers or so, who's somebody who, like, essentially a placeholder. Yeah, maybe. I, I do think that they're – so I agree the draft is going to be – it'll take some maneuvering, you know. But um, Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes were there at 10 and 12. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not impossible to move up there. And I think we're seeing every year – I always overdraft quarterbacks, right? Like, I do a mock draft, and I've got quarterback, 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 you know. And then the draft happens, and it's like, quarterback well now we're going to take a defensive tackle and now the team's considering a running back and like all of a sudden you're at 10 and there are quarterbacks on the board so I think that's still a possibility but I would look to I'll give you a guy here what about a guy like Jameis Winston Jameis Winston um, and he may not be the type of guy that they want but is a younger player with potential you know we're seeing quarterbacks play well into their 30s and 40s now um who could come in and you could give him a chance to win that job. And if he plays up to his potential, we'll give you a, a big uh, boost over Ben Roethlisberger. So George, Sam me, Darnold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, I, I was going to bring up Sam Darnold, but let me bring up someone to try to merge pro football and college football. Suppose I told you whether it's at the current draft pick right now that the Steelers are projected, which I guess would be in the teens, maybe 18, 19, somewhere around there um, that they could get um, the quarterback from uh, Alabama. Mac Jones, Jones, is that his name? Mm -hmm. Mac Jones. Would you take him? I think I would. And I joked about this the other day, but the transition from Big Ben to Big Mac could not be more seamless. I mean, that is to me the, the perfect way to, to sell it to the fan base and get everyone on board. But he has, he has some of the characteristics I think that you would be looking for with the receivers they have, right? He throws an incredibly accurate ball. He throws a very accurate deep ball. And what they do at Alabama, which I think is so brilliant, is they're always running these horizontal lead passing concepts where he is throwing to receivers on the run, right? The most common pass that we see an NFL quarterback throw is a horizontal lead pass to a guy running horizontally across the field where you have to hit him in stride. And so for him to have that experience, now he's not going to have that same receiving core that he had at Alabama but that's the type of arm talent that you can win with I, I like it I I am always a fan of taking a chance on a young quarterback because you are rolling the dice even at the top of the draft and if you hit your franchise is set right and nothing else matters but until you hit also nothing else matters so, George, we only have about one minute left. Um, could you tell us what are you looking for in this upcoming weekend of games? Anything that we should be surprised about? Any underdogs are picking? What do you think is going to happen this week in the games? Well, I'm going to give you a little um, uh, tidbit from Richard Sherman, who talking about the Browns and the Chiefs today uh, with, with Chris Collinsworth. I get to listen to that podcast as it happens. Joe Woods is the defensive um, backs coach for the Browns, who was with the 49ers last year. And Sherman said 
our plan against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, it was great. Yeah, we ended up giving up that third and 15 and things fell off, but we had a plan. I think the Browns and Baker Mayfield is playing really well, could keep it close with the Chiefs, and then I'm taking Tom Brady over Drew Brees. Tom Brady playing the best of any quarterback in the NFL right now. Well, you know, I'm a longtime Tampa Bay fan. Shane is a longtime Patriot fan. So between the two of us, you just made two oh, people very it, happy. Love it. Love it. I'm, I, I would love for that to for him to just keep that crazy thing rolling. Hey, look, I'm look. My dream is that, of course, the Buccaneers beat the Saints, the Rams beat the Packers and the Ram, the Bucks have two home games in a row, the <laughs> NFC championship game and then roll right into the Super Bowl in Tampa. My Super Bowl bets want that to happen as well. That would yeah. be great. Well, George, it's been great talking to you. We've been talking to George Shahuri. Uh, George is CXO at Pro Football Focus. We obviously have – it's great to have George on. We, uh, matter of fact, this almost seems like the Pro Football Focus show, given how many people we have from Pro <laughs> Football Focus on. So, George, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Hey, anytime, guys. Be well. So this has been the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we're going to come back after the break. We're going to talk about college football and all kinds of other things going on in sports. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball for quarter three. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined by my co-host, uh, professors Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, both from the statistics department. Some combination of the three of us and our primary host, Cade Massey, here on Zoom every week, two hours of sports talk radio and statistics here on Sirius XM. So, guys, we just spent some time talking to George Shahuri from Pro Football Focus. We spent a little bit of time talking about uh, the games this weekend. What else do you guys see kind of happening this weekend um, in the pro in the pro uh, pro game? What do you see going on? this? Well, week? I mean, I'm kind of of course, I'm kind of focused on that Brady Braves matchup as a, as, as a Brady fan. I'm kind of intrigued because, you know, of course. Um, New Orleans has matched up well against Tampa Bay this season and has basically dominated them in two games. But it's it's kind of interesting. I think I saw that, you know, in all the cases where teams have played three times, you know, three times in a season, there's never been a case where where the same team has won all three. So, I mean, like, you know, to a certain extent, like there is some historical precedent I don't for think, Tampa Bay. So let me see the data that I saw. Maybe it's different. So I, I just posted here since the 19, I posted in our rundown, since yeah. the 1970 merger, teams that beat another team twice in the regular season and face them in the playoffs are 14 and seven. Oh, I guess I was just looking at a, a, a weird so, so cut of that. Words, if you want to just yeah. use, I mean, pure raw averages, forget their yeah. relative strengths, by the way. Um, but, and by the way, let me just say, I think uh, if you look at Massey Peabody or Pro Football, uh, the Power Index, the ESPN Pro Football Power Index, I'm not sure two-thirds, one-third is that far off mm-hmm. where you would find the win probability of those two teams right now. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's about right. I think even though I'm a Buccaneers fan, I think someone would have to give me two to one odds on an even on a bet right now to take the Buccaneers over the Saints. I think that's about right. I think it's a little closer just because I do think Brady is playing better than Breeze. I, I, I was not particularly no about impressed it. by Drew Breeze on, on, on Sunday. But I do think that what New Orleans has essentially is a coaching advantage. 
I mean, I, I certainly do think that uh, coaching wise, uh, they're, they're, they're probably a, a better sort of, they're a better coach team. So that does give them kind of an inherent disadvantage. I, I, would, how would, I would put it closer to 55-45. Can I ask about the defense on the New Orleans side? They looked really sure. good. I'm not sure. Based on what we heard from George, defense, uh, can you predict it? Does it matter? I don't know what to make of it. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, Chicago's offense is terrible. Yeah. And Mitch so Trubisky, Trubisky make anybody look good. That, you, you really can't learn much from that. Um, mm-hmm. To me, the Saints, though, have their defense has been playing well uh, all year. And um, look, I think it's just a matter of it's it's going to come down, in my view, to one group versus another, which is the Bucks offensive line against the Saints defensive line. If Tom Brady has time to throw, I'll take an open Mike Evans I'll take an open, uh, you know, uh, Antonio Tony Brown. Brown. I'll take an open Gronk. I'll take Chris an open Godwin. Chris Godwin. I mean, Brait. The guy, they'll have op- they'll if he has time to throw. There are open receivers all over the field. However, I've I, I watched every play of the last two Saints Buccaneer games. There is not time to throw because this <laughs> here's what the Saints are really good at, Adi, and this is what I was going to bring up. The Bucks have a good defensive line, but they have good ends. They get a lot of pressure on the edges. Against Brady, Breeze, these old guys, Roethlisberger, you got to get pressure up the middle. The Saints are tremendous at getting pressure right up the middle and forcing Brady out of the pocket. And that's where these old guys, whether it's Roethlisberger, Breeze, etc., they can't throw the ball if you get pressure right up the middle. And that's why. If Brady has time, Bucks win the game. And I'm just going to stop, you know, we can move on from this game, but I, 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 every time Brady wins in the playoffs from now on, I'm going to give one Brady uh, fun historical fact. He has now has 31 playoff wins, correct? which puts him above all but five franchises in the history of the NFL in terms of playoff wins. And if he wins this upcoming week, he will tie the San Francisco 49ers in terms of total playoff wins. I think it's also fascinating just to have a, um, you know, something that we talked about a little bit. Um, and actually, I asked this question of a bunch of friends of mine. Um, who is the oldest quarterback still playing in the AFC? Does anybody know? Who's the oldest quarterback still playing in the AFC in the, of the four teams? And I'll just tell you who the teams are. It's the Browns, the Chiefs, the Bills, and the – who am I missing? Browns, Chiefs, Bills, and Ravens. 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 Who's the oldest quarterback? Is it Baker? Is it Baker, it's Baker Mayfield? Mayfield at age twenty-five? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the NFC, we have Brady forty-three. Bruce Brees seemed to be forty-two. I forget if Aaron Rodgers. I just forget yeah. if he's thirty-seven or thirty-eight. And then, of course, we do have. I assume for the Rams, I don't know. Let's say it's Jared Goff, but. We, again, it's yeah. just a massive. Old men difference. in the NFC, young men in the AFC. It's a great kind it of is, contrast. It is. It is fun to think about. Yeah. Um, what did you guys think? We had a big deal here in Philadelphia: the firing of a Super Bowl coach, a coach with a winning record, a coach who had made the playoffs. I think in every year that he coached, except for this year. Yeah. So what did, or at least maybe not the yeah, first no, year. Yeah, no, I mean, he I think the, and he I, made I, the playoffs I, certainly in three of his five years. And, and I think, four. I mean, you know, I think, I, I think it's one of the fastest kind of you know spans between winning the Super Bowl and getting fired, like in. I get at least modern NFL history. Um, I was a little bit surprised by it. I mean, it did sort of seem like it came down to either him or the GM in terms of uh, who who is going uh, going to uh, be leaving the Eagles. But no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm I was kind of shocked by it. 
Do you uh, think it's because they, I mean, again, there was this kind of, you know, maybe Wentz and him can't coexist. And, you know, I, uh, Jeffrey Lurie, the owner, uh, keep, kept, talk, keeps talking about Wentz still being a big part of the future. Um, maybe it's because of the, whatever, four years and $150 million or whatever it is left on his contract that they have no choice but for him to be part of the future. Yeah, no, and I mean, like, I think, you know, Howie Roseman is very well regarded within the organization, clearly, but I do think it's interesting. I heard about Howie Roseman. I think he's been there eight years, and he's undergone, you know, they've had essentially four coaches in that time. So that's another that's another good point. Well, you know, now that we're, you know, we also had, obviously, I think it would be remiss given we're in the third quarter of the show, and obviously we have Ron Yurko joining us for the fourth quarter of the show. Um I think we have to talk a little bit about college football and the game went on last night. So I don't know, Cade, you're, you're our, at least you're certainly by far our expert on college football. Um, what did you see in the game last night? Um, other than the most extraordinary wide receiver play that I've ever seen in college football. I mean, what, how did you one just of the tell most our listeners though, tell our listeners, isn't there the possibility? One possibility is Devonte Smith is just great. Another possibility is that Ohio state's defense is just awful like they have a at one point they had a linebacker covering him and you know he just scored a touchdown just like it was open by like 10 or 15 yards how do you as someone that studies college football has analyzed it obviously massey peabody etc how do you separate out he's great versus ohio state's cornerbacks and defensive schemes stink well there's a there's a there are a couple other factors as well so the the offensive coordinator for alabama soon to be head coach at the university of texas so i'm biased here Steve Sarkeesian is known as a fantastic play caller and they've had a great scheme and they've been one of the most prolific offenses in the history of college football. Last year, LSU pegged the meter and these guys are right there with them. And so it's, it's, it's more than just one guy, but you know, I've watched, you guys have all watched a lot of football. I don't think I've ever, well, that can't be true. I must've seen something, but it's one of the best individual performances I've ever seen. I mean, it was such a tragedy. You had to go out in the first half, but over 200 yards and three touchdowns and a half of play. And it was more than that. It was like, he must've accounted for about half of the offensive plays. I mean, back to him, it was like the, it was like the strategy. Some coach have, which is if you can't stop this thing, I'm just going to keep doing it. And Sark, the offensive coordinator for the, for the tide had a lot of different ways to get that guy open. He was obviously the best weapon they had. And so he's like, I'm just going to come up with all kinds of creative ways. He was doing things with them that see other teams do, like these fake motion one way and go back the other way. And it, it's, it was just, it was also one of these things where you get these out of sample predictions. You're like, oh my God, this, you know, you're, you've seen a, a quarter of play and you're like, this is extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And then it keeps on being extraordinary. It's just, it was such a delight to watch real time. It was yeah, just Adi, one of those, it's one of the reasons we watch sports. Yadi, what did you see? Yeah, so it's interesting for me because I don't watch very much college football, mostly because it played on Saturday, but also being the Northeast, you don't really have a, a college team that you root for. Um, does, it's not the place where college sports is so dominant. But but I have watched a bit of pro sports, and one thing I noticed from the college, this is the championship, the receivers are just so much more open in compared to the professional game. So why is that? Because it, and and Or am I just getting it wrong? I, I don't you don't see receivers that open in the NFL uh, as much, I think. And actually, I assume, Adi, by the way, yours is an answerable question for motion tracking data, right? 
Yeah, but I mean, is it the defensive backs or the? I mean, is it just the, the the additional variance? That always is an interesting point because at the professional level, everybody's pushed up so high at the far tail of the distribution that the difference between the top guy and the two and three and four is just much smaller than you get when you're dealing at college, where the top person is so much better um, at their job than the people who defend. I, th- I think all, all those things are true, but it's also true that you're dealing with professionals versus college kids. And you, they, it's not just oh, about the individuals. It's also about the scheme and understanding the scheme. And the defensive backfield is a place where there's a lot of coordination and handing off. And there are going to be more breakdowns among groups of people who just don't get to practice as much. There are limits on how much you can practice. Of course, mm-hmm. there are in the NFL as well, but there's less. It's less binding in the NFL. And some of these guys in the NFL have played together for years. So it's, it's both. The better players and the variance is a great argument, but there's also a systemic a question about college versus pros as a, as a unit. It makes it fun, and though, I have to say. All the, all the passing and running and openness, it's great. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, watching the game, I mean, it did make me kind of wonder repeatedly, how are they not just putting like two guys, you, you know, how they how it even took them, yeah. you know, 200 yards to adapt to this person. <laughs> Defense yeah. it's the Heisman. So it's and I, I mean, I, I mean, you, and, and Kate, I think you already answered that question a little bit because, you know, basically it sounds like Steve Sarkeesian was very good about coming up with a myriad of different ways to utilize that, 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 that player. So maybe it was very hard to kind of adapt essentially to it, but I mean, they should have learned by like a hundred yards in that linebackers are not the way to cover that guy. Yeah. But I mean, you're, you're going to, I mean, good offensive coordinators hunt, those weaknesses in the defense yep. and they figure out ways to get those linebackers. I mean, there's only so many things that defense can do. The other thing you have to keep in mind, obviously, and by the way, I think Eric's right. that the defensive backfield for Ohio state was never seen as a strength of the team, but obviously Alabama had other weapons. I'd be very curious to hear how you guys felt about Najee Harris. And you might've been the first time watching him play. And I think he is almost as delightful to watch as Devonte Smith. I mean, just well, such a pleasure. That guy is a big guy and he runs with, like a little nimble guy. It's yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you guys. If I mean, right now they have, obviously, they have uh, Devontae Smith certainly going in the top five. A lot of people project him to go to Miami at three. Like, wouldn't it be great to partner him back with his old guy, Tua? Um, a lot of people have him going at three. Um, a lot of people, you know, running backs, Najee Harris, who, you know, certainly he's the most, probably the most talented running back. He's rated number one. You also have, you know, Mac Jones, the quarterback. If you had to put both a mean estimate and an uncertainty estimate on Jones, Harris, and Smith. So the quarterback, the running back, and the star ride receiver. How would you rank order their potential as pros? And I'll give you my own bias first without getting your answers. I'm concerned about Devontae Smith's size. I'm con- not his height. I'm concerned about him weighing 170 pounds. And I started to look at the best wide receivers in the NFL, the, you know, Devontae Adams and, you know, all, all the different – and the, these guys weigh 220, 230. So given that, what do you guys think? Davis, Smith, Harris, who are you projecting going forward? What do you think? Kate, I'll start with you. Well, you know, we're, we're short running backs these days. And you, you think you're, it'd be silly to bet on any running back being the most um, impactful of that set, even someone as talented as Najee Harris. Um, there's just so much more uncertainty, I would say, about quarterbacks than about wide receivers, um, which is in, inclines me towards Devontae Smith. Um, I mean, I think it's possible that Mac turns out to be uh, this. Just 
few months and over the next few years actually is out. But in general, it's, it's harder to forecast. It's also, it's probably also harder. Quarterback is maybe more system dependent and context dependent and support system dependent than a receiver. I mean, I, I, I think he could probably drop Devontae Smith onto most teams and he would prove valuable, but I hear you on size, you know, Marquise Brown for the Ravens is a very small guy. He was a first round pick. He was Eric DaCosta, his first ever draft pick. Um, and he's done pretty well, but he's a small guy. And you worry well, about a guy that's small. How many games was, did Marquise Brown play this season? He's, he's been healthier. He wasn't healthy the first season, but he's been, he's been in most of them. This well, year. Or I'll ask how, 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 how big is Michael Thomas? How much does Michael Thomas or Emmanuel Sanders weigh? So I looked up Michael Thomas on the saints. He's a big man. He's okay. big. He's a very big receiver. Adi. Yeah, uh, uh, does any of this affect the Jets and their number two pick? Hold on, hold on one second before you go there. I want to say like this really stupid thing about <laughs> about just watching Devontae Smith run. I mean, this is like, I know nothing. I'm not a professional scout. So it's, it's just the worst thing I could possibly say. But I think he runs differently than other people do. I mean, <laughs> such a, and, and a guy, I mean, you know, that doesn't mean anything, but it's, it jumped out to me watching him play last year. Just quickly, by the way, um, Shane, to your question, uh, Michael Thomas for the Saints is 6'3", 215. Yeah. Okay, so that's his size. I look at Devontae Adams. He's the same. He might even be 220, 225. And now we're talking about uh, Devontae Smith being 171 is what they list him at. So well, what do you think he's going to be? What do you think is going to be three years from now? Or, you know, as, as, as he's a young kid, right? He's like probably 20 years old. Yeah, right? Maybe so 190, but he's not going to be taller. Unlikely. Does that matter? Well, he's the height or doesn't matter. The height, no, the height. I mean, it's, it's really in, in his case, he's, he's not unusual in terms of height. He's you. I know he's answering my Jets question. Anyone have well, any? Uh, so, uh, well, so I mean, the first <laughs> question, I'll answer it the best I can. Who's, first, ca- who's that caller on line one? Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, Adi, I think the first thing you have to decide if you're the Jets is, are you keeping Sam Bradford and uh, not Sam Bradford, uh, Sam Darnold, Bradford, definitely not. Somebody did that. You're the second person on the show in the last month who did that. I think I did that, but yeah, Yeah, you don't want to keep Sam Bradford. Although he was, uh, he was the number one pick as well. Oh, Um, Bradford. I mean, you know, if you could, I think Darnold was, if you could have a healthy Bradford, I'd take him. No, 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 no. So I I think the first thing you have to decide if you're the Jets, are you going to keep Sam Darnold as your quarterback because you know i don't know and by the way let's talk about this kate i'd love your thoughts on this how much did the draft stock potentially of justin fields drop after yesterday's game and we saw him play in theory great against clemson but i go back to the question i asked you maybe clemson's defense sucks and therefore fields is no good (laughs) and maybe now he finally played a good defense a pro-like defense and now we saw the real justin fields which is the same justin fields we saw against northwestern against indiana etc how much did his draft stock drop well, it dropped relative to the week before because it was at an all-time high the week before, right. just regression to the mean. Um, I, I don't know. I think I think he impressed a lot of people with his toughness, um, and that matters a lot to NFL scouts. And it's so it was such a high-profile event when he got hit like that against Clemson and then came back on the field. I mean, that just goes a long way in those scout rooms. So you're the yeah, GM yeah. of the Jets, and Adi Weiner's your biggest fan, and he asks you, should the Jets take Justin Fields at number two? What are you saying to him? I'm hoping no is what I'm hoping. I don't, I don't, but I'm I a don't regression know. to the mean guy, and I don't like Justin Fields for, his, for the whole season, not just one game. So. No, you got, but you got to consider, I mean, Fields, uh, highly 
lauded high school prospect, good season last year. I mean, great season last year. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot going for him. I, I think there are so many quarterbacks in this draft. I don't know why you would stick with any one particular mm-hmm. if you could trade back and pick up some extra trade guys. down. So they should trade down there too. I for- mean, there's just one thing we know is it's really hard to predict which of a set of quarterbacks is going to be best long-term. And if that's the case, then you ought to exploit other people's convictions and come out of it with some other quarterback and some extra picks. So maybe in the last uh, three or four minutes we have, uh, let me ask you guys, there was a, I think it was Devontae Smith said it last night. I think Mac Jones said it last night, Alabama's the best team that's ever played. So uh, Kate, I know you've done some look at this, both FPI, maybe Massey Peabody has, we, we've talked about this for a few weeks. Can we compare across years? What do we know? Well, it's a great question. You, you posed this earlier, just in time to go gather a little data. And it was easier, sadly, for me to jump on ESPN and grab FBI's because we've been so dodgy with our college football Massey Peabody this year. So I just went and got the, the FBI for the last 15 years. This is this great power ranking system that ESPN does. And it's quite a cousin and built very similarly to Massey Peabody. And this year's Alabama team, Ended the season at, with a power ranking of 35.9, positive 35.9, which means they'd expect to be win his first A on a neutral field. It's in, in record for the FBI. 15 years, 16 seasons, 16 seasons. It's the highest. So high, we just, just collected the top-ranked team, the top-ranked team each of the last 16 years and took the average and the standard deviation for that. So the top-ranked team for the last 16 years averages 30.25, plus 30.25. So they expect the top-ranked team to beat an average team in, in, in NCAA by 30 points. Alabama, 35. The standard deviation on the, over those 16 years is 3.38. So Alabama, this is a precise answer to your question, mm-hmm. 1.67 standard deviations better than the, than, the, than, than the number one teams, than the historical number one team. So 95th percentile, look at that. Which, what, what, what percentile? 95th percentile. 95th percentile of number one ranked teams in the history of the FBI. So, yes, an outstanding team. So that, that's very, very interesting to see. And it's good to be able – I think this is a great thing to be able to compare uh, teams across time. It's one of those questions uh, we're always going to want to know. So, guys, in the last one minute that we have, um, we've asked a bunch of our uh, – we asked uh, George Shahuri about this. Um, we can definitely ask Ron Yurko about this as well in our last quarter. Um, what upsets any – what's your upset special for this week coming up in the NFL? So as y'all are thinking about that, I'm going to make that last observation just one bit more concrete. If you put this year's Alabama team against the 2005 Longhorns, which is right next to so a couple of teams. This that was are the tied. Vince Young, the Vince Young team. Vince Young, best you know, game of all time. This year's and, and that, that is one of the that's like the second best team in this 16 year stretch. This year's tide would be a two point favorite over Vince Young's horns, just for example. All right. So your question about the upsets. Um, the closest thing we could come up to an upset would be the Ravens over the Bills, I would say. And it's just a barely an upset. It's kind of a cheat there, right? Because the line is, is two points. Massey Peabody makes it one point. And, you know, the Ravens, if you like, if you like momentum, then you like the Ravens. They've been playing well. So who's the underdog? Last. Are the Ravens the underdog? Is that? Yeah, they're, the, they're, the, they're on the road, and so it helps make them an underdog. Well, that's – let me just You know say what about- mine's going to be, right? 
Yeah, well, yeah. Who, who I assume would the guess? Buccaneers over the Saints. Buccaneers <laughs> over the Saints, obviously. Yeah. Right. I, I, I think lots of people, you know, are, are potentially, as, you know, George Shahuri was saying, a lot of people might think that Cleveland has a chance against the Chiefs. I, I'm not buying that. I, I think that's too big a mountain to climb. Yep. Agreed. Yep. I think that's too big Agreed. a mountain to climb. Well, this has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have one quarter to go. We have our. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Wharton Moneyball, the show where statistics and sports collide. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host, Shane Jensen. Um, We are fortunate this half hour to have a guest who's been on our show, Wharton Moneyball, before, someone who's well-known in the sports and statistics analytics world, and that's Ron Yurko. Um, Ron's going to tell us again a little to remind our audience a little bit about himself, but he's a PhD student in statistics at Carnegie Mellon. And uh, Ron, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It almost feels like, um, what's it like, a return host for SNL sort of feel? You know, it's like I reached the new level by being a return guest. I don't know if I can quite follow some of your recent guests, uh, Eric Eager, Ben Baldwin, but I'll do my best. Yeah, what's actually been great about that is that now that I'm following them even more closely on Twitter, when I see something like, and we'll talk about this a little later, when we see all these bad fourth down, not going for it calls, and I now can actually tweet and and can actually uh, put in their names, um, I'm getting a nice conversation with them online, which is good for listeners to see. So Ron, maybe you could just remind all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing now, and what got you interested in sports analytics. Yeah, so I guess to start with, um, I'm currently a PhD student in the statistics and data science department at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. That's also where I did my undergrad. Um, and I, during my undergrad time, I worked with uh, professor, former professor Andrew Thomas on some baseball research because I actually interned with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, as an undergrad that was sort of like my dream job at the time of uh, working in sports I mean I'm from Pittsburgh so I was always a sports fan growing up uh, watching Steelers and watching the Pirates lose every day uh, through the 90s and early 2000s but so I was always like sports ultimately actually was got me interested in statistics and I was fortunate enough in my opinion, to be at the right place at the right time to meet people like Andrew Thomas uh, and then Sam Ventura, who he's the current director of hockey research for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He advised myself and also uh, Maxim Horowitz was an undergrad with me who now works for the Atlanta Hawks. We were working on this project to access uh, NFL play-by-play data and then try to promote uh these public use of uh, expected points models. And so this, this was this NFL scraper project, this R package that ultimately we created and promoted on Twitter and whatnot that kind of took off, to be honest with you. Um, we found people like Ben Baldwin, Josh Hermsmeyer. They started using it. They started promoting it. Uh, it really kind of went well beyond anything I ever expected. Uh, and it's at the point now where, like Ben Baldwin and others have really evolved from it for their NFL faster source for providing public expected points and win probability models. So that, that's kind of where my, my big, uh, uh, you know, contribution to the world of sports analytics really lies of promoting this NFL scraper and trying to get data out to people and have open source modeling approaches that then they could build from. Right. And so and I think it really helped motivate and contribute to just a growth in 
public and football analytics work, this age of Twitter work. So um, let me ask you a question, Ron. Um, Let's imagine that, roughly speaking, Shane and I are a little closer, but let's imagine the three of us are in different, let's call it, eras in the statistics field. When I went through my Ph.D. program, um, sports statistics was something you dabbled on the side with, but serious statisticians, except people like George Casella, um, there were other people as well. Uh, Fred Mosteller had written some papers. Lots of, there are well-established, well-known statisticians that have written papers in serious journals, but essentially it wasn't a thought of as a serious endeavor. How do you see sports statistics playing a role in your career going forward? Whether it's on the academic side, will it always be something you do on the side? How do you see that role? Well, part of it, I think, is kind of a bit of both in the sense of you see really novel contributions from uh, working with data from sports. And I, I look to people like Luke Bourne and then also, I mean, Sam himself for his joint work with Andrew Thomas, Shane Jensen, uh, you know, to actually do novel approaches, applied statistics problems that themselves are interesting, both from the sports perspective and from the stats perspective as well. And I, I like to think that, you know, it's, it could be working on very interesting, complex problems that are going to lead to novel methodology, but at the same time, are kind of fun because I understand what I'm working on. <laughs> well, I'm hoping, and, and Shane, you can jump in. I'm hoping that um, people have gotten to the point where they realize that um, sports and statistics data is the greatest Trojan horse there's ever been for most of us. And that's really what got almost all of us, many of us statisticians interested uh, entirely. So Shane? Yeah, I guess I'll follow up on that. I mean, from my own career, I, I kind of agree. And I, I think that one of the cool things that I've sort of seen like kind of sports analytics becoming a little bit more, um, say, you know, academically accepted or or, or central academically is kind of the realization that, you know, of course, in statistics in general, we develop methods and procedures for a particular type of data situation. And sports analytics just presents us with some really kind of cool data situations in, in this with, with kind of the availability of more high resolution data. I kind of think of all the amazing spatial modeling that's been going on in football, basketball, et cetera, um, at like, you know, at very kind of high uh, time uh, frequencies as well. And I, and I sort of like a lot of that, I think, is methodologies developed there can kind of be ported over either from a particular field, of, you know, area that statistics already have been applied as well as, you know, two like kind of new areas. And so I guess my question would be sort of like of sort of the sort of stuff that you're working on right now in sports analytics, do you kind of see its potential kind of across other domains? Yeah, I'd say, honestly, even things I'm working on in this genetics genomic space of thinking about uh, types of correlation structure for how things affect uh association with like a certain disease or whatnot and ultimately like there's things that are overlapping with each other and it's analogous in a way to players being on the same field at the same time so that structure this self and how it affects whatever response i'm looking at at that particular level of sports data um and like to be honest with you the work i've recently been doing for this nfl tracking big datable ultimately are taking methods uh from fellow students in my department have worked on for problems related to astrostatistics or climate science, right? And then taking advanced methods from there and, hey, they're very analogous problems for modeling player movement. So what do you see as the big 
areas for needed advancement in sports analytics today? Is it, you know, I always like to ask this question of everybody. Is it, do you wish you had better data? Do you wish you had better, I'll call it models and computing, or do you wish you had people that kind of um, wanted more of this? In other words, is it a data problem? Is it a models or computing problem? Or is it kind of a managerial resistance problem? Where do, where do you see the greatest opportunities? So I guess I'll say I don't have enough experience to comment on the third part of the managerial aspect of it. But I, I will say that I think in terms of just getting public work done, the first part being the, the access to data that's the most crucial, at least from my perspective. Um, and that, to me, is one of the reasons why something like the NFL's Big Data Bowl is, is such a huge achievement to have every year, right, is it enables uh, – students, grad students, researchers, people who are working on very different fields to get access to that type of data to hopefully lead to new developments and research and whatnot. So what um, can you tell us? Let me ask you about this weekend. So I don't know how much football you watched this last weekend. It was a dream for us football fans. Um, there seemed to be so, so many ridiculous bad calls this weekend. And I've even, you know, I tweeted about it. And then I saw Josh Hermsmeyer and Ben Baldwin follow up on my tweet saying this was like the second worst call in the history since we've been tracking data, like in the last 20 years. Um, what did you see that went on this last weekend that just kind of shocked you? Like, do you realize you've just given up like 10% win per or eight, 7.9% win percentage here? Oh, I, I think the one that's most painful for me uh, being from Pittsburgh, watching the Pittsburgh Steelers and the decision, you know, when you're down, I, I don't even know how many touchdowns at the beginning of the game after so many turnovers. Well, they were down 28 and, to nothing to start the game. Yeah, and then not going for on a fourth down. And then at the end of the game, the opportunity where I'd like, regardless of any discussion about momentum, just the idea of you're willingly giving the other team the football when you need to score in the final quarter. Um, and like, I looked at the entire time, Ben Baldwin's fourth down bot and you could see, yes, the recommendation, very strong, go for it. And the Steelers always managed to be on the, no, we're not going to, uh, we're going to be very conservative approach. Dan, it was interesting to sort of see just that happen in like three different games that basically kind of happened. I mean, at different points in the game. I mean, I agree the Pittsburgh one, I think, was in, in, in some nebulous concept of momentum, the most egregious and that it really sort of seemed to kind of stall out whatever kind of comeback that they were, were putting together. But the one that, you know, there was also the one in the Titans uh, Colts game before halftime that was a you know, at least by, I think, the uh, the analytics, a relatively egregious mistake as well. So I, I also thought it was kind of notable that we had so many of those specifically kind of fourth down decisions, especially given that that is at least one play way area that we've seen some amount of tangible advance over the last few years. Like relative to five years ago, would we have even talked about those things as being egregious mistakes? I don't know. <laughs> So, Ron, what do you see as the areas for which you mentioned kind of the increased richness of motion tracking data today? We, I just asked you about fourth down, but going for it, not. Where do you see the biggest, let's call it new areas? Like just before we got on the air, we were talking about the big data bowl, some work my son and others have been doing about, wouldn't it be great to rank defenders, offensive players, et cetera? What do you see as the next big, I'll call it application areas of sports analytics that can either be used by teams 
systems for evaluating players, drafting players, contracts, et cetera? Yeah, I I honestly do think it is this notion of we're doing these sort of advanced modeling techniques on this tracking data, but actually the step of trying to attribute to the players on the field, that division of credit for the tracking data, to me, is still a very open problem, very difficult problem, right? So, you know, we have these approaches of plus minus at like a possession level, at a play level, right? But to do the sort of plus minus at a player tracking level, um, you know, I've been still thinking about what are the best ways of going about that. Uh, And I I think it's been great that for like this year's Big Data Bowl, there have been a lot of approaches people have been taking, whether it be head-to-head player comparisons or uh, like the work I've done myself with uh, uh, Professor Costas Pellicrinus at Pitt, we did this ghosting approach, right, to compare what would happen given some hypothetical player that you know, represents like a league average uh, and how, take, how the player's position compares to that. So let me ask you a question, just because um, the term ghosting in my home field of quantitative marketing means something when it comes to randomized experiments in advertising. Did you, did you intentionally choose the word ghosting, like ghost ads? or So, is this... <laughs> so it's, it's a term that's been around for a little while now, I guess, in this world of uh, – for sports analytics, this research of trying to say where would a league average person or player be? And like, there's been a lot of work in soccer data, basketball, uh, of people trying to model these, what they call ghost players, like this ghosting approach uh, to then compare how, what would we expect the uh, league average uh, center, how would they move to do a blocker or something, right, uh, compared to what the actual observed player did? So uh, it is the same concept because in advertising, we show somebody a targeted ad, but we want to show them a ghost ad. We don't want to leave it blank. We have to show them something. So what would a typical ad do? And then we're going to look at lift curves above and beyond. So it probably, I mean, maybe not intentional on your part, but it's not clear that it's not the same counterfactual idea that's used in randomized experiments for no, ad I, I, it really is and uh, no the funny thing is i might have just learned where the the origin of the name just came from <laughs> your example in the advertising the uh, it really is this idea of this is this hypothetical comparison uh and so we want to see okay this is the expected outcome uh given where the player is what if the player was replaced with this ghost this sort of league average defender i don't like to use the term league average necessarily uh, but just this other hypothetical uh person and how that relates to what do we what 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 are the changes in that expected outcome once we make that substitution so this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics. We're here on SiriusXM on the Wharton Moneyball podcast. We're talking to Ron Yurko, who's a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon in uh, Statistics and Data Science, and we're talking about all the kind of work he's uh, doing now in football. So let me ask you a question about the work you even mentioned about making this data available through the Big Data Bowl. How do you think we'll ever get to the point where someone were to say, well... 
Sure. I can measure player A offensive, let's say wide receiver versus defender B in a one-on-one matchup. But the only reason defender B is on player A is because player C is a better offensive player and therefore the second best cornerback goes on to player A. And so really, I got to give some of the credit to player A to player C who's on the same team because they're all, you know, I'm the Rams. Jalen Ramsey's on the best wide receiver. So the second best defensive back is on me. And now I benefit from that. Do you think we'll ever get away where these, I'll, I'll use your genetic example. We have these long DNA sequences. We have different locations on the sequence and potentially massively high order interactions. How are we ever going to deal with that problem? Or do we need theory and theory to deal with the problem? It's not going to be a massive combinatoric data-driven solution because that's not going to go anywhere. That, honestly, that, that's a great question and point that I, I need to think about more with regards to even like the approach I'm, I've been taking and others have been taking uh, to think of the issues of, you know, there's so many things you could try to condition on, right, to, to sort of simplify or even some assumptions I can make about uh, what I'm trying to compare a player to. But yeah, if I, if I could create, for instance, a uh, set of features or define like how a person compares to the player they're uh, assigned to in terms of coverage, right? Maybe if I can condition on that, it could give me some insight into what my expected outcome could be itself. I don't mean to make life even more complicated for all of us, but I mean, there's, there, there's kind of you, you thinking about what you should condition on when evaluating even an interaction between a, a defensive back and a wide receiver. Yeah, conditioning on things like who they're matched up again to start to play, what the scheme is, those are all complicated sounding enough to build in. But I think there also has to, like, to really do this properly, you have to kind of condition in real time on what's happened even during the play leading up to that. I mean, you know, a particular wide receiver defensive back combination, you know, the ball gets thrown to them maybe because they're the third option to a quarterback and the first two options that have already been checked out by that quarterback aren't available. And so if that's a unsuccessful, if that's a kind of successful play on the part of the defense, you want to attribute some of that to what actually happened between that third defensive back and third wide receiver. But some credit for that play has to go to the fact that, well, the first couple options that the quarterback actually tried to look at were, were unavailable or something like that. And so, like, I think there's, there's conditioning not just on sort of the per- matchup of personnel, you know, for a particular play, but even within the play, there's the kind of time ordering context that ideally you would try and take into account. And I know in basketball where there's a lot less players involved and a lot less kind of scheme involved, you know, they try, you know, there have been kind of, there has been kind of work to try and do this in a kind of continuous time way. I don't know if I, have you seen anything kind of out there yet that sort of tries to do almost like real time continuous modeling? Yeah. So, I mean, there's actually several of the Kaggle notebook submissions for this year's big data bowl that we're trying to do continuous time models for uh, pl- uh, pass evaluation. Um, and I, I know even, I, my group uh, two years ago at CMU, fellow researchers at the time, uh, students, uh, Lee, Pus- Lee Richardson, Taylor Puspisil, Francesca Matano, individuals that have gone on, graduated, and working for Google, and um, collaborators at Pitt, uh, Costas Pellicrinis, and uh, student Nick Renaird, along with Sam Ventura and myself, we worked on uh, this problem of doing the continuous time modeling, uh, specifically in the example of uh, – running back carries and modeling how the expected point value changed over the course of that run uh, to try to 
at the time that was just doing the continuous time value it didn't go into the okay how do we divide that credit right because at each point in time in a way you would want to say you know what was the hypothetical of saquon barkley made this particular cut and so maybe that led to this massive change in expected point value versus what the average Mm -hmm. running back does but at this you know i can make a statement if i condition on all of the linemen were at this particular point, right? And all of the other defenders that were at this particular point. It has a great opportunity because it almost says, you know, imagine being a coach and, you know, imagine a system. I can dream. Imagine a system said, um, so, Saquon, um, you chose the right hole, but you didn't get through it quick enough. Or, you know, so then, you know, it's kind of like, where's the attribution? Is it you made the right choice? Um, but you didn't execute it well enough or you didn't make the right choice and you did as best as you could given you made the wrong choice. Well, I would just harken back to kind of like a, like a, an old timer, an old timey sports analytics example of this was back when I was first working with fielding data in baseball. You know, the, the first generation of kind of high resolution fielding data gave us basically, you know, a, the outcome of a particular ball in play and where the ball ended up. And we had to kind of back, you know, try as much as we could to model kind of fielder ability given those outcomes. But we didn't know to a certain extent, given a, we knew that a successful fielding play had been made. We didn't know necessarily whether it was because that fielder was really fast and really got to the ball quickly or whether they had just sort of, you know, kind of were a little bit better about positioning themselves relative to an average fielder more recent data has allowed us to kind of deconvolve those two things. So now you can actually measure speed to a ball, like speed of a player to a ball, et cetera. So, you know, maybe as we look to the future of football, it'll be, you know, maybe data in some way will help us to kind of separate out some of these things. Yeah, Bron, one of the areas I'd love to hear your thoughts on, one of the areas that I probably spent most of my time since I spent five years working with the Eagles, we spent most of our time working on evaluating talent, um, evaluating the value of combine and other forms of data sets in evaluating players. And also, of course, you know, this was in the early days, so which position actually lead to winning? You know, so you can have the best running back, but, you know, 4.5 is only 0.5 more than 4.0. This is before everybody realized that running backs weren't particularly discriminating in terms of winning. Um, What are some of the new and exciting things that you've seen or are interested in, in kind of the questions that sports teams, by the way, you can refer, if it's hockey that you're doing now or, or baseball or basketball or football, what are some of the interesting questions that you see being asked today that you're like, wow, I, we couldn't even imagine because of the data we have now, even thinking about that question, let's say five, 10 years ago. I guess for me right now, I'm still just thinking about these questions with the, with the player tracking data, at least in the NFL. I'll say that I think there are like these new opportunities for um, in baseball with handling uh, the different tech that's coming out for like spin rate from the new uh, in ways they have uh, stack ass implemented and whatnot uh, that could lead to new insight in terms of uh, pitching batter matchups. But honestly, to me, I just I just think the biggest sorts of questions are at handling this spatial temporal data uh, of all these player movements. And I think there's a lot of interesting work that could be done with it with regards to, uh, you know, sports medicine and, you know, understanding how much players have been, you know, been moving. And I mean, I just know for a fact that 
baseball teams were using player tracking data or even charting the amount of movement uh, players were doing over the course of a game via interns marking where they were at on the field to then give it to their trainer and to understand that and then to lead into coming up with uh, resting ideas and whatnot. And like, I could see a similar idea. I just kept thinking about this with like the Steelers watching different wide receivers being the main person of target on different drives and just thinking about if certain receivers are repeatedly running at uh, high speeds, longer different types of routes, right? Are we going to think about sort of in-game optimal resting strategies that could come about from this type of data itself? One of the things that I found really interesting that they're even using on broadcast now, and certainly after the game, is to say, you know, I'll use your team, the Steelers, um, Ben Roethlisberger, um, given where how open receivers were and how much separation they created, this is the percentage of passes he should have completed. This is the expected number of points that should have been generated, et cetera. I'm finding those analyses really interesting because, again, you know, it's back to what Shane was describing is, is the reason why he's throwing interceptions because no one's open? Are they open and he's just not getting them the ball? Is it because the uh, defensive back or safety has made a great play on the ball, meaning acceleration? No one, no one could have expected because it's in the 99th percentile of the speed distribution. I, I'm really interested. Even just that question, I'd be interested in just in quarterback evaluation. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. The uh, it is nice to see that there are now like the postings of the uh, the predicted completion probabilities that we see during the game. Uh, and so it, get, it gets at more insight. And it's actually kind of funny because I had this discussion recently with uh, Sabir Deshpande and Catherine Evans of talking about work they had previously done on this expected hypothetical completion probability with player tracking data and the challenge of, well, maybe Jameis Winston was throwing to wide open receivers, but because he's not an accurate passer, he's failing to make those completions, right? Versus Russell Wilson could be throwing to receivers with low completion probability, but because he's completing them, we we can get some insight into, yes, he's an accurate quarterback. So it's this notion of we're doing these models for this player tracking data and coming up with these interesting estimates for values and whatnot, but that we do have to connect them and evaluate them somehow with the outcomes to get at what the player is doing. Like, how do we assess the player with those quantities? It's yeah. still, to me, you know, interesting question. And, 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 I, and I think it's sort of like, again, because you, you want to kind of try and separate out kind of what aspects of a player's kind of current slash past performance were sort of like luck-based versus more perspective that you can kind of expect to continue in the future. Like, I think I I saw somewhere, I mean, nobody could, is doubts that Patrick Mahomes is a very talented quarterback, but this season, at least, I think he had some unusually large number. He was unusually lucky on kind of contested balls where he, he should have had like his kind of expected interceptions given ball placement. It was much higher than his actual observed number of interceptions. And that's an example of something where you might expect some regression next year, just based on the fact that he seemed unusually lucky this year. And so like, I think as far as talent evaluation goes into kind of prospectively try and project players into the future, it's usually important to try and get this, get these kind of calculations, uh, you know, out there and, and, and correct. So Ron, we only have about two minutes left. So let me ask you two rapid fire like questions. Um, the first one is if we're talking to you a year from now, um, what research of yours about in sports analytics are you going to be telling us about what, what's on the horizon view of the next like six to 12 months? So I'm definitely going to continue working on this submission for the big data bull. I just did with Costas Pellicrinus on 
evaluating defender ability to limit yards after catch. Uh, we, as I, you know, I talked about this idea of a ghosting defender and ultimately like what we were doing was we were modeling this distribution of yards gained after catch to c- compute like an estimate for the probability of a first down. Cause I'm big on, I don't actually care about expected yards gained. I think we need to focus on the distribution and think about how the peaks of that distribution change given where players are out in the field. Uh, and then this idea of how do we compare to what a ghost defender would do? Uh, and there's uh, interesting questions there in terms of, I just did like an expected ghost defender, but really I should consider what could be the distribution of where ghost defenders could be and sort of average over those to really account for a better uh, performance metric of an individual player. That That's, that's really what I, I, I kind of have a plan for what I want to work on with this. Well, I love the problem because there are certain situations where you may actually go for someone who has lower expectations but higher variance. In other words, so I, I could imagine a lot of practical implications from that. Maybe one last question, just so you're a sports fan, um, now that your Steelers are out, um, how do you view the four games this weekend? Where, how, how do you see them going? Any thoughts about any of the four games? Any surprises you think that we'll be sitting here? Like I, I'm sitting here thinking, I saw what the Rams just did to the Seahawks. Can the Rams do the same thing to the Packers? Any, any thoughts from your view on what any upsets? I, I guess I, I, the, you know, the Cleveland Browns just won without practicing and whatnot. So I have no idea what to expect anymore in terms of <laughs> outcomes for these games. Uh, I will say I, I'm somewhat rooting for the Bills, uh, just given what they've done. Uh, Dennis Locke being kind of behind the scenes as well. I think that's pretty exciting for the field. I think you're just saying that because Cade Massey has now just rejoined us that you're uh, rooting for the Bills. But Ron, it's been great talking to you here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, And again, uh, thank you for joining us and we hope to have you back soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, I'd like to thank the big boss man, Matt Datz, and I'd like to thank uh, Dion Simpkins, our associate producer. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-hosts today, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Cade Massey, and I'm Eric Radlow. Um, we're here every week on Zoom doing the best we can to explain to yourself about COVID and what's going on in sports. Uh, between now and next week, enjoy your sports, and we look forward to seeing you on the next edition of Wharton Moneyball. Wharton Moneyball.